Hello there, I'm Peter S. Williams, uh, an English Christian philosopher. I'm sorry I can't be with you at the conference this year. You'll have to uh, make do with this photograph of me in uh, Winchester Cathedral. Uh, my website, for those who might want to uh, find out more about my work, uh, can be found at peteraswilliams.com. So, to business. My paper is called, Is Christianity Childish? Uh, rhetorical advice for Christian apologists from C.S. Lewis's essay on three ways of writing for children. I recently published a book called Apologetics in 3D, Essays on Apologetics and Spirituality. Um, this is a, an approach to apologetics I've been developing that's based in a holistic understanding of spirituality. Everyone has a way of life, a spirituality, that includes a worldview. A spirituality is made up of worldview assumptions, that is, the ideas about reality that one believes and or acts upon, uh, combined with attitudes that lead to actions. So we have a, a three-part definition or understanding of spirituality. And as I point out in my book, uh, this three-part understanding of spirituality links with a number of other uh, concepts or sets of concepts uh, in threes. Uh, for example, let me particularly draw your attention to the column uh, of classical rhetoric here, uh, also highlighted uh, in the orange. So we have one's assumptions relating to Logos, attitudes to pathos, actions to ethos, one's actions reveal one's ethos. Now, Lewis's essay on three ways of writing for children, which was first delivered as a talk at the Library Association in 1952, and was published posthumously in Of Other Worlds in 1966, can, I think, serve as a resource for thinking about rhetoric in Christian apologetics and the charge that Christianity is childish. Now, as Roy Porter explains, over 200 years ago, the German philosopher Immanuel Kant wrote an essay entitled, What is Enlightenment? For Kant, enlightenment was mankind's final coming of age, uh, the emancipation of the human consciousness from an immature state of ignorance and error. Now, while Kant, like many key figures in the Enlightenment, believed in God, some inheritors of the secular strand of the Enlightenment have adapted Kant's metaphor as a rhetorical way of putting peer pressure or sneer pressure, one might say, on religious believers. For example, at the end of his recent book, Outgrowing God, A Beginner's Guide, British atheist Richard Dawkins makes this appeal. 
I think we should take our courage in both hands, grow up and give up on all gods, don't you? Elsewhere, Dawkins says that religious people have their Bronze Age myths, medieval superstitions and childish wishful thinking. The association here is between unreliable truth claims and youth. But this is, of course, a false generalisation. Young cultures and young people alike can believe many true things. Dawkins himself, I'm sure, believes many true things that Bronze Age people believed and that children believe. Dawkins is here indulging in the fallacies of cherry-picking, selective use of data, and what Lewis dubbed chronological snobbery. As he wrote in Surprised by Joy, chronological snobbery is the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate common to our own age, and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that account discredited. You must find why it went out of date. Was it ever refuted? And if so, by whom? Where? How conclusively? Or did it merely die away, as fashions do? If the latter, this tells us nothing about its truth or falsehood. Now, in On Three Ways of Writing for Children, Lewis discusses three different approaches to writing children's literature. He says, I think there are three ways in which those who write for children may approach their work. Two good ways and one that is generally a bad way. Lewis discusses the bad way first and the lesson drawn is further illustrated by the second way. And then finally, Lewis defends that particular type of children's story, which is dearest to my own taste, the fantasy or fairy tale, from the charge that it is childish. Now, let's explore how the dialectical moves made by Lewis can inform the rhetoric of Christian apologetics in general and provide a rational response to the accusation that Christianity is childish in particular. Lewis writes, that in my own first story, I had described at length what I thought a rather fine high tea given by a hospitable fawn to the little girl who was my heroine. A man who has children of his own said, Ah, I see how you got to that. If you want to please grown-up readers, you give them sex. So you thought to yourself, oh, that won't do for children. What shall I give them instead? I know, the little blighters like plenty of good eating. In reality, however, I myself like eating and drinking. I put in what I would have liked to read when I was a child, and what I still like reading now I am in my fifties. See, Lewis complains that the man conceived writing for children as a special department of giving the public what it wants. And yet Lewis emphasises that uh, I myself like eating and drinking, 
and uh, he still likes reading about that now he's in his 50s just as much as he did when he was a child in other words lewis is rejecting condescension to one's audience he writes i rejected any approach which begins with the question what do modern children like i might be asked do you equally reject the approach which begins with the question what do modern children need with the moral or didactic approach now i think the answer is yes because i feel sure that the question what do modern children need will not lead you to a good moral if we ask that question we're assuming too superior an attitude it would be better to ask what moral do i need for I think we can be sure that what does not concern us deeply will not deeply interest our readers, whatever their age. Lewis goes on to note that once in a hotel dining room, I said rather too loudly, oh, I loathe prunes. So do I, came an unexpected six-year-old voice from another table. A sympathy was instantaneous. Neither of us thought it funny. We both knew that prunes are far too nasty to be funny. This is the proper meeting between man and child as independent personalities. So, in particular, Lewis rejected condescension and shared something that he himself appreciated as both a child and an adult. The general point here is that authenticity is key in communication. Sincere belief in the value of the thing communicated should precede the communication of that thing as being valuable. That is, good rhetoric aims at a proper meeting between independent personalities. So in apologetics, of course, the apologist should reject condescension to their audience and aim at a proper meeting between independent personalities, uh, which will mean communicating what they themselves appreciate and find persuasive about Christianity. The second way, says Lewis, is the way of Lewis Carroll, Kenneth Graham and Tolkien, the printed story grows out of a story told to a particular child with the living voice, perhaps uh, extemporary. It resembles the first way because you are certainly trying to give that child what it wants, but then you are dealing with a concrete person, this child who, of course, differs from all other children. There's no question of children conceived as a, a strange species whose habits you've made up like an anthropologist nor i suspect would it be possible thus face to face to regale the child with things calculated to please it but regarded by yourself with indifference or contempt the child i'm certain would see through that in any personal relation, the two participants modify each other. You would become slightly different because you were talking to a child, and the child would become slightly different because it was being talked to by an adult. A community, a composite personality is created, and out of that, the story grows. 
So to apply this second way, where in particular Lewis is saying that when one responds to that specific and particular child, he suspects it wouldn't be possible uh, to regale that child with things calculated to please it, but regarded by yourself with indifference or contempt. Again, the general point here is that authenticity is key and that it's hard to fake sincerity. And so in apologetics, in a one-on-one discussion, the apologist can focus on the particular needs of a specific dialogue partner, but can't regale them with things calculated to please them, but regarded by themselves with indifference or contempt. Now, the third way, says Lewis, uh, which is the only one I could ever use myself, consists in writing a children's story because a children's story is the best art form for something you have to say. Just as a composer might write a dead march, not because there was a public funeral in view, but because certain musical ideas that had occurred to him went best into that form. The particular and general point here, of course, is to choose the best art form for something you have to say. And so in apologetics, we should remember that apologetics can be conducted in a variety of rhetorical and artistic forms. Now, of course, this is something that Lewis himself absolutely epitomises in his own apologetic writings. I myself recently wrote a book responding to Richard Dawkins' book, Outgrowing God. Um, I gave myself the title Outgrowing God, but with a question mark. And because I was addressing the same uh, teenage audience that Dawkins's book was aimed at, and because I wanted to represent how people with different worldview opinions might think about the issues and how Dawkins discusses them, I wrote in the ancient philosophical form of a dialogue between different characters. Let's expand a little with Lewis upon this third way. Lewis writes that where the children's story is simply the right form for what the author has to say, then of course readers who want to hear that will read the story or reread it at any age. He says, I never met the wind in the willows until I was in my late twenties, and I do not think I have enjoyed it any the less on that account. I'm almost inclined to set it up as a canon, that is a rule, that a children's story which is enjoyed only by children is a bad children's story. This canon seems to me most obviously true of that particular type of children's story which is dearest to my own taste, uh, the fantasy or fairy tale. So here's more lessons from the third way discussed by Lewis. Lewis is giving us a distinction here between bad children's stories which are enjoyed only by children, and good stories that can be appreciated by children, but also by adults. Now, a story that can be appreciated by a child may also be a story that can be appreciated by an adult. 
And the fact that children appreciate a story doesn't mean that adults can't or won't or shouldn't appreciate it. So if the Bible contains stories that children appreciate, well, that doesn't mean that adults can't or won't or shouldn't appreciate those stories. And indeed, such appreciation may be intellectual as well as artistic. And this is reflected in the fact that one might read the same biblical story uh, in, say, the Osborne Illustrated Children's Bible and in the Apologetic Study Bible. Lewis writes that now the modern critical world uses adult as a term of approval. It is hostile to what it calls nostalgia. Hence, a man who admits that dwarves and giants and talking beasts and witches are still dear to him in his 53rd year, is now less likely to be praised for his perennial youth than scorned and pitied for arrested development. And note what happens to this quote from Lewis if we substitute some of the terms and talk about a man who admits that God and angels and um, Balaam's ass and the witch of Endor are still dear to him in his 53rd year, and so on. Well, Lewis makes a number of defences of the fairy story that I think we can make parallel defences against the charge that Christianity, the Christian story, the Christian gospel, is childish. First defence, Lewis writes, I reply with a two quote you too. Critics who treat adult as a term of approval instead of merely a descriptive term cannot be adult themselves. Uh, to be concerned about being grown up, to admire the grown up because it is grown up, to blush at the suspicion of being childish. These things are the marks of childhood and adolescence. And in childhood and adolescence, they are, in moderation, healthy symptoms. Young things ought to want to grow. But then on into middle life, or even into early manhood, this concern about being adult is a mark of really arrested development. In other words, the, the peer pressure attached to the, the critical use of adult as a term of approval relies upon an ambiguity that ignores the distinction drawn by Lewis between children's stories and stories appreciated by children. Lewis writes, when I was 10, I read fairy tales in secret and would have been ashamed if I'd been found doing so. Now that I'm 50, I read them openly. When I became a man, I put away childish things including the fear of childishness and the desire to be very grown up. Here's Lewis's second defence. He writes that the modern view seems to me to involve a false conception of growth. They accuse us of arrested development 
because we have not lost a taste we had in childhood. But surely arrested development consists not in refusing to lose old things, but in failing to add new things. I now enjoy Tolstoy and Jane Austen, as well as fairy tales, and I call that growth. If I had to lose the fairy tales in order to acquire the novelists, I would not say that I had grown, but only that I had changed. A tree grows because it adds rings. A train doesn't grow by leaving one station behind and puffing on to the next. In reality, writes Lewis, the case is stronger and more complicated than this. I think my growth is just as apparent when I now read the fairy tales as when I read the novelists. For I now enjoy the fairy tales better than I did in childhood. Being now able to put more in, of course, I get more out. A third defence is made by Lewis, where he notes that the whole association of fairy tale and fantasy with childhood is local and accidental. He writes that according to Tolkien, the appeal of the fairy story lies in the fact that man there most fully exercises his function as a sub-creator, making, so far as possible, a subordinate world of his own. Since, in Tolkien's view, this is one of man's proper functions, delight naturally arises whenever it is successfully performed. For Jung, fairy tale liberates archetypes which dwell in the collective unconscious, and when we read a good fairy tale, we are obeying the old precept, know thyself. Now, we might say that likewise, the whole association of religious faith with childhood is local and accidental. The association is a, a talking point arising from enlightenment rhetoric, despite the fact that many leading figures of the enlightenment were theists and or Christians. I mean, for example, René Descartes, Immanuel Kant, John Locke, Thomas Reed, Mary Wollstonecraft, and so on. So, in conclusion, Lewis's essay helps us reflect upon rhetoric in general, and we can apply those reflections to thinking about Christian apologetics in particular. And his essay also helps us to make uh, parallel replies uh, to the accusation that Christianity or the Christian story is childish, uh, parallel replies to the defences that Lewis makes in the case of the criticism that uh, fairy tales are childish. We can conclude that authenticity is key. Uh, the apologist should reject condescension and aim at a, a proper meeting between independent personalities, communicating what they themselves appreciate and find persuasive about Christianity. In one-on-one -on -one discussions, the apologist can focus on the particular needs of a specific dialogue partner, 
but can't regale them with things just calculated to please them, but regarded by themselves with indifference or contempt. Again, authenticity is key. You can't fake sincerity. Now, Christianity offers a, a story that can be appreciated by children, but which is not merely a children's story. And the whole association of religious faith with childhood is local and accidental and assumes a false conception of growth. Many adults, including adult intellectuals of the highest calibre, such as Lewis himself, find that as they put more in to appreciating the gospel and the Bible, the more they get out 